Well, this past Sunday, we were in Acts chapter 8, and we will be there again this evening. If you would, turn there in your Bibles. If you have some, a Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 8. If you were with us on Sunday, you will remember that I said that Acts 8, verses 1 to 25, really do function as a unit of text. These verses tell us how the gospel went geographically from Jerusalem to the surrounding area, especially this province called Samaria. It's one unit of text, but it deals with a number of rather crucial and somewhat complicated issues, especially in what we'll see tonight. So on Sunday, we had to only look at about half of the verses, and tonight we'll push on through with the rest of this story of how the gospel got into Samaria. On Sunday, we saw Saul's attacks in the first few verses, Saul's attacking the church, and that's how the gospel spread out of Jerusalem. Persecution actually had its opposite effect as what Saul and others would have hoped. It scattered Christians, which means it scattered the gospel, and the gospel flourished as it spread. You see verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So that's Saul's attacks. Then we saw, secondly, Samaritan advance. Verses 5 to 13, we saw that Philip deliberately takes the gospel into Samaria because, well, that's no small part of Jesus' plan. Acts 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Well, forget that outline. I've got a new one. Rather than finish that one, I was hoping no one would notice, but then Phil Ward, before the service began, said, well, what's, what's going to be number three and number four this week? And I said, I got something new. I, I can't sit on that for three days and not think something else, so we'll, we'll see something else. Here's, here's what I have for us tonight. Here's what the, more importantly, what the passage has for us in the second half here of these 25 verses or so. The question for our passage tonight is, is this advance of the gospel the real thing? Is this the real deal? On Sunday, we didn't really need to ask that question. We didn't really wonder, perhaps. But the rest of the passage of chapter 8 goes on to test that reality of the gospel spreading. Is the faith of the Samaritans in this particular city a legitimate faith? Is it the real deal? And what about this one particular Samaritan, Simon? Is he for real? Is he legit? So look down and read with me. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, let's consider first, by way of setting, what we might call Samaritan conversion. Samaritan conversion. We covered these verses of 5 to 13 on Sunday, but it's good for us to look at them again tonight briefly so we can see how this flows in to the rest of this passage. Notice that we have two different groups of Samaritans. In verses 5 through 8, we have the conversion of Samaritans in an unnamed Samaritan city. It's a group of Samaritans. And then verses 9 through 13 deal with that one particular Samaritan named Simon, giving us his background and, and his apparent conversion. Let's start with Simon. Remember, he was a magician, a, a real mag magician, not an illusionist. He tapped into satanic powers. As we just read, he was all about himself. He was full of self-promotion. He loved people being amazed at his powers, and they were. He, he had a big following. He was famous among the Samaritans. They even said that he had the great power of God. But then Philip came to town, and he had even greater power. He had the real power of God, power over the satanic forces. And so he performed exorcisms and healings. God was working through him in order to substantiate the gospel that he spoke. One particular city there in Samaria heard what Philip said and saw what he did, and they not only, notice verse 6, paid attention to what he said, but then they believed, verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached the good news, and they were baptized. They Identified with Christ, they became Christians, they were saved. In fact, Simon too, this former sorcerer, verse 13, he himself believed and was baptized. 
And then he continued with Philip, it says. We're not quite sure exactly what that means. But maybe it has something to do with the fact that he was amazed at the signs and great miracles that Philip had been performing. This is all very remarkable. Samaritans, these groupies of a satanic magician, these Samaritans with a history of rebelling against God and tinkering with his religion, they are saved. They identify with the Jewish Messiah. They are forgiven, restored, reconciled. And even the sorcerer who had deeply and for long tapped into satanic powers in order to promote himself. He identifies with Jesus. He is baptized. That's the end of the story, right? It could be. Samaria, success, check. On to the next city. Maybe we'll go past Samaria, but not so fast. And this is about to get tested. So secondly, we have the Spirit's confirmation. Verses 14 to 17 give us the Spirit's confirmation. We'll see how and why the Spirit confirms and what he confirms in just a little bit. But this is where it's going. The Spirit's confirmation. It focuses on the Samaritans in general. Again, this unnamed Samaritan city and those who were converted there under Philip's preaching. Apparently, we're told, verses 14 and following, and mysteriously, we're told that they did not at first receive the Holy Spirit despite believing in Jesus. It says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit, that is, until two apostles, John and Peter, come from Jerusalem And they lay hands on these Samaritan believers. They pray over them. And then the Holy Spirit comes, apparently in some visible or perhaps audible way. Now you might wonder, what does all this mean? Why do you need apostles there? Why was the Holy Spirit delayed? What does all this mean? Let me tell you some things it doesn't mean. That's one of the good ways of doing theology. Start putting aside the things this can't really be, this really shouldn't be considered. For instance, in this case, this doesn't mean that the Samaritans weren't yet saved until Peter and John came to town. No, there's nothing in the passage that hints at that. Notice also John and Peter, when they do come to to town, they don't come with the gospel. They don't come re-preaching the gospel. They don't come with a different gospel than Philip. They don't come with more gospel than Philip gave. No, instead they come and they pray for the gift of the Spirit to be given to them. They don't come and pray that they would get saved. It doesn't mean they weren't yet saved until Peter and John came. Secondly, it doesn't mean that Philip was a subpar messenger for Christ, that he could get people saved, but he couldn't get them any Holy Spirit. You need apostles for that. No, it doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean that this is the norm, that the delay or the gap between conversion and the coming of the Spirit is the norm. Now, you might have some friends, maybe you believe that. Maybe uh, you have a Pentecostal background, or maybe you're 
still in a Pentecostal church. Pentecostals today believe this, that there's a gap between conversion and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they look to Acts 8 as probably their primary passage showing it. They believe there are two stages to the Christian life. There's belief where you get salvation, and then there is a second blessing where one receives the Spirit. And in Acts 8, it's hard to argue, there is clearly a gap between conversion and the Holy Spirit. But the question is whether that is normal, whether that is normative, whether we should expect that in every occasion for every believer. Well, let me just try to quickly prove to you that this is not the biblical norm, that this is an exception in God's word. This is something unique to Acts 8 because it's not what Peter preached in Acts 2, verse 38. You could thumb back there if you want. Acts 2, verse 38, there Peter preaching an evangelistic message said, repent, implied is also believe, And be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the gift is for all who the Lord calls to himself. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for all. You you repent and believe, be baptized, and you receive the Holy Spirit. Everyone who does that gets the Holy Spirit. It's also not what the Apostle Paul teaches later on in his letters. Let me just run through a few phrases from his letters. Like in Romans 8, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He can say broadly to the Roman church. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Everyone gets the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. 1 Corinthians 12, in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Or Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, we have received the promised spirit through faith. You have Jesus, you have faith, you have the Holy Spirit. On and on I could go reading from Paul. Apart from a couple of instances in Acts, the universal teaching of the New Testament is that at conversion, every Christian receives or is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In Acts, there are a couple of variations in timing and in manifestation, we might say. You see, sometimes the Spirit's coming in Acts results in something miraculous, something visible or audible. It's a manifestation like tongues, a fire. And then sometimes there's no visible manifestation for the coming of the Spirit. Sometimes in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes simultaneously with conversion, such as in Acts 11. In Acts 8, though, there is this gap of time between believing and receiving the Holy Spirit. And it even seems in Luke's record here in Acts 8, there's a hint that this is surprising a hint that this is unusual. He says in verse 16, the spirit had not yet fallen on them, almost like it, it should. There's, this is, it hasn't yet. And they had only been baptized, that is, with water. And so there's some mystery here. So why then did 
it happened this way? Why did God delay the gift of the Spirit for these people? And why were the apostles the means by which they got the Spirit? Well, it has to be related to this fact that this is in Samaria, that these are Samaritans. Remember that deep and long hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were only half Jewish. They had intermarried long ago with foreigners. To the Jews, Samaritans epitomized a people who went astray from God. They had a much smaller Bible. They worshiped on a different mountain. Uh, They had different beliefs. There was much bad blood between the groups. There was long-lasting resentment between the two. There was suspicion and judgment and racism and even violence. But now the gospel here in Acts 8 has come to both the Samaritans and the Jews. You could imagine then the possibility that those old ethnic religious issues, tensions, rifts would just continue even in a new era. You can imagine ongoing suspicion in both directions, ongoing judgment In condescension, the Jews may be thinking, oh, okay, Samaritans believe in Jesus now, but they must be second-class Christians. They've always been second-class or worse. Maybe Samaritans would be tempted to think that they they don't need the Jerusalem church. That's the Jews. They've always done their own thing. Sure, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the God-man. Salvation comes in him. We believe in Jesus. But do we really need Jerusalem? Do we really need apostles? Can't we just get our own apostles? We're pretty good at taking what they had that was true and making it our own. Well, that won't work. And so it seems that in God's providence, he unusually withheld the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit from the Samaritan believers until the apostles could be there and the Holy Spirit would come through them. It accomplishes two things, I think. It substantiates the Samaritan's faith and it solidifies the two groups. It substantiates the the Samaritan's faith as legitimate because the apostles are there to witness it, to affirm it, to confirm it, to, to see not only their confession, but also see the Holy Spirit come visibly, undeniably. It substantiates the Samaritan's faith and it solidifies the two groups, the Samaritans and the Jews, who now clearly as of Acts 8, not only have the same Jesus, the same Messiah, the same gospel, they also have the same apostles. They have the same spirit. They have the same experience. They have the same church. No longer two mountains. Jesus is making all things new. He's making them one. As Paul will later write in Ephesians There's one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So now the Samaritans cannot think that they don't need the Jerusalem church or the apostles. And the Jews can't think the Samaritans 
are now second-class Christians because they don't have any tie to the apostles and they don't have anything to do with Jerusalem. The Spirit was delayed, apparently, so that everyone involved could see the Spirit come. It would be an objective, undeniable evidence that verifies and unifies the authenticity of the Samaritan faith and the oneness of God's people now in Christ. It was needed because of the uniqueness of this situation and the old history of tension between Jews and Samaritans. Now in Christ, that rift between Samaritan and Jew, or slave and free, or Jew and Gentile, it's all gone in Christ. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. And so the delay of the gift of the Spirit isn't needed anymore. It was a unique situation here in Acts 8. Now we Christians can actually lean on verses in the New Testament which promise the Spirit to all and each and every Christian as soon as they believe. We may seek and pray for fresh fillings of the Spirit, empowerments of the Spirit, sure. But we don't have to wonder whether you or I, Christian, have the Spirit. We do. And so note this. Apply this however you will. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. There are no second-class citizens in a church. There are no charter members that are better than the new members. There are no Johnny-come-latelys or rookies that we dismiss or condescend to or roll our eyes at. Yes, there are leaders and teachers in the church. There are those who are further along the Christian race than some others. But age and race and skin and color, uh, education... Money, status, none of this really matters in the church anymore. Thirdly, let's consider. Thirdly and lastly, Simon's corruption. Simon's corruption, verse 18 to 25. We've, we've considered the Samaritan citizens in general, but what of that one particular Samaritan named Simon? Remember, he seemed to believe, back in verse 13, he was baptized, he followed Philip around mysteriously, he was amazed at miracles, and now in verse 18 and following, he sees the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming through the hands of the apostles, and, well, the real Simon begins to show himself. And the real Simon is the same old Simon. He's the same old Simon after all. Verse 18, he offered them money. He said, give me this power so anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now obviously this is misguided. You can't purchase the power to distribute the Holy Spirit. You can't bribe your way into the apostolic club but you might think it's just misguided. You might think this guy, 
He's a new Christian. This is wrong-headed. It's spiritually immature. But that's about it. But P- Peter's rebuke in verses 20 to 23 should make it clear to all of us that this is not just misguided immaturity. Let's just take Peter's rebuke one line at a time to see the severity and seriousness of all this. In verse 20, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Uh, the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of the Bible right here famously has, to hell with you and your money, which is actually much closer to the original Greek than most of the major translations have. To hell with you and your money. May you perish with your silver. It's a curse. He puts this curse upon Simon, verse 20, second half, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. God's grace and the gifts that flow from his grace cannot be bought or earned or bribed. In fact, if you think you can purchase any bit of the grace of God then you have fundamentally misunderstood the very nature of salvation. You don't know the gospel if you think any part of it can be bought with money. So verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. I think this matter here, it just means literally in the, in the original, you have no part in this word. I think that means this gospel. Your heart is not right before God. This is a man who's not just misguided or off track or something. He doesn't have the gospel. He's not right with God. Now, Peter does hold out the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. It's possible. So verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. But then it's right back to where his current state lies. Verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You see, this is not someone who's saved but immature and misguided. The language is far too strong. And you might say, well, what of Simon's response, though? Well, verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, this sounds sweet, but this too is all wrong. This isn't what Peter called him to do. Peter said, Pray to the Lord yourself. He doesn't. He asks Peter to pray to the Lord for him. Peter said, Repent and seek forgiveness. And Simon is only focused on avoiding judgment. See if you can get these curses to sort of bounce off me and not go to me. And that's where the story ends. Never showing us Simon with heartfelt, genuine repentance and faith. We're left with only Peter's words of condemnation hanging in the air. The real Simon is the same old Simon after all, despite baptism and belief. And now the whole picture becomes clearer even earlier on in the story. 
Now we can see that there were some hints earlier on that something doesn't smell right with this Simon guy and his so-called faith. Remember, Simon was a man who loved power. He loved to amaze. And then greater power came to town, and he wanted in on it. Even after he believed and was baptized, verse 13 stands out, he followed Philip around, amazed at the miracles. That's significant because the other Samaritans, those genuinely saved, they, they too saw the power in and through Philip. But then they believed what he said. They turned to what he said. They believed, quote, the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Their focus went from the power to the person. And Simon, too, it says, believed, but no specifics. It's not filled out. There's no content to his belief given to us. And apparently he can't seem to shake this interest in, if not obsession with, amazement in greater power. So he followed Philip around, gawking, wanting more power, it seems. Look also at the wording of his bribe in verse 18. Here again, even after his belief and his baptism, his focus seemed to be remaining on power and himself. He says, give me this power so I can do this. He doesn't even say anything about him getting or having the Holy Spirit. Did he get it? Doesn't seem like it. Was he worried about it? Doesn't seem like it. He wants the power to give people the Holy Spirit. He wants the power to make people have a miraculous reaction to his hands. You see narrative storytelling in the Bible, these subtle clues, all painting a clear picture. So Simon didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. There is a kind of belief in the Bible that really should be belief in quotes. It's belief. It's not true saving faith. Simon's faith was corrupt because his heart was still corrupt. In John chapter 2, we're told many people believed in his name. That is Jesus' name. When they saw the signs that he was doing... But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man's hearts. They believed. They were impressed. They saw the miracles. But Jesus knew it wasn't real, and so he didn't entrust himself to them. Remember that parable of the four soils that Jesus gave us in Mark 4. Remember that the fourth soil is the real deal and it continues to variously bear fruit. There's also that first soil on the other end where it's just soil. The seed of the gospel never penetrated the soil. It's just soil. That's not real faith. But then there's the second and third soil that's something in between. There's a soil where the seed goes into the ground and something starts to grow up and it says, but there's no root. So they endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises, they fall away. That's the second soil. The third soil, it looks promising for a while, 
But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so Christians have to keep bearing fruit. Christians have to keep going on. They have to keep on believing. True Christians will keep on. Far from perfectly, but genuinely. They will prove their faith is genuine. They will prove it, and they must, in a sense, prove it. This is not just a reality or a promise in Scripture. It's also given as a command in Scripture. In other words, genuine Christians have a responsibility to do what God promised he would already do through them. He will keep them. If it's real from the beginning, he'll keep it to the end. But they must keep on believing. They must not be presumptuous. There are real commands given to us in Scripture to Christians to keep on in the faith lest they prove that it was all empty. Let me just read a few passages for you, like Hebrews 3. Listen, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Maybe you know this little bit from 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That in context is not talking about one specific temptation and one specific sin, but a lifetime. Or 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I say again, if you got the gospel truly, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you can't lose what he's given. You can't even shake his love off of you. But the question is, do you have the gospel? Do you have the gospel? Some think that they do when they don't. And Simon was one of those. So was Judas. Do you have the gospel. Are you sure you came to Jesus for Jesus? Is Jesus merely the means to something else? Or is Jesus the goal? Is this thing of coming to Jesus really, at the end of the day, more about you? Maybe you came to him mainly for opportunities mainly for the community, mainly to fit in, to go along, to not lose face. Maybe you came to Jesus, quote-unquote, for some experience. Maybe you came to Jesus for the singing. Where else are you going to get good, regular, together singing? Not many places. Maybe you came to Jesus for the intellectual intrigue. I know of some teen boys when I was a kid who started going to church 
and even calling themselves Christians for the chicks. That's what they said, for the chicks. That's why. Going back to church for the chicks. Some of them, by God's grace, eventually truly got saved despite their horrible intentions. And many of them just eventually moved on to better fishing ponds than the prudish church. I know of some adults who go to church for the business connections that you get. You could be a better realtor if you go to church. Some are even willing to throw a little money in the offering from time to time. I know of some who come to a church because Christians are pretty nice. Not perfectly nice, but, but on the whole, they're, they're more nice, I would say, than the average out there in the world. And, and, and you, you really can't be too mean in a church because people are watching. And so I know of some who I think identify with a church because it gives them connectivity, community, and acceptance. And besides, it's cleaner than a bar. We've all seen countless politicians play religion and use Jesus to get more votes. I wonder what Peter would say to them and how sad it is when pastors, instead of a Peter-like response, sell out. It is possible to use Jesus to get something else that you want and look religious in the process. You might even get baptized. But that was just a bath. If you got baptized, don't, don't think that necessarily means that that picture of death and resurrection and identifying savingly with Jesus' death and resurrection is your story and is your reality. It could even be a good thing that you pursue using Jesus in the, as a means. It might be a spiritual experience. That's not a bad thing. You could be after a miracle. That's not a bad thing. Or after community. So I ask you tonight, what are you in this for? Why are you here tonight? What are you hoping to get out of this Jesus thing? Him? Is that enough? What amazes you? Simon was amazed at miracles because he was obsessed with power. Christians are amazed at the gospel. That Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I remind you, brothers, of that gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. So hold fast to it. How do you hold fast to the gospel? Well, you keep seeing your need for the gospel. You keep knowing that you have nothing to offer. None of this can be bought with money, righteousness, or so-called good intentions. You instead just keep 
clinging to Jesus, keep repenting of your sins, keep believing in him, believing in the gospel, the good news of his kingdom and his mercy. Respond to that gospel with great joy and amazement and awe, not with maneuvering or manipulation. So that'll mean keep dying to self. Don't use his things for your personal advancements and self-promotion. Keep talking about it to others. That's how you hold fast to it. You keep talking about it, pleading with others that they would truly join you in it. That's what the apostles did after all this was said and done. Verse 25, they stuck around the Samaritan city for a little bit, teaching and preaching, probably teaching, training these who were already saved. And then on their way home, Samaritan village after Samaritan village after Samaritan village, they stopped and they proclaimed the gospel. We hold fast the gospel by just continuing to think on it and to rehearse it and to teach it to others, by going to his word often, by going to God in prayer to talk to him about our sin and about the gospel and our thankfulness, as the Heidelberg Catechism has as its headings, guilt, grace, gratitude. Keep talking to the Lord about your guilt apart from his grace and then how great his grace is and then how grateful you are for grace that's greater than your guilt. We hold fast to this gospel by coming to this table tonight, by remembering the cost that Jesus gave for us and for our salvation. So here again, hear these words from 1 Corinthians 11 about this meal. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. It's not that Christians would forget that Jesus exists, but they would forget their need for a savior. They would forget the extent of the savior. They would forget the cost of their salvation. They would forget the implications of this salvation and so great a savior. Do this in remembrance of me because you're by nature forgetful people. And so he took the cup. After supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this visible form, in this small micro drama of eating a little bread and drinking from a little cup, we proclaim the Lord's death to ourselves. We proclaim the Lord's death to all those who are observing it with us. We're reminded to go and proclaim it when we leave this place. We proclaim the Lord's death here tonight in symbol, in word to ourselves. We proclaim his death and its finished work. We proclaim that he spilled his blood, that his body was torn, that it is finished, and that he'll come again. We proclaim his death until he comes. He will come again. 